0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 107, Islamic History, 624, The Battle of Badr, Part 4. Battles are ugly. They're horribly violent, primitive episodes. And often, particularly in the ancient world, The cleaning up after the battle, the aftermath, it could be just as bad. Badr was not a massive battlefield, and the losing side only had about 70 dead slash horribly wounded and another 70 taken captive. So at least in this case, you weren't talking about a gigantic field strewn with blood and body parts and writhing, screaming, wounded men. But there were some. Not thousands, but some. And the cleanup would have to be done. And part of that cleanup includes deciding who lives and who dies. So, what did the Muslims do? Well, before we get into that, you probably should understand what would have been normal in these circumstances, in this time, and in this place. It was normal to start cutting off limbs and heads and to do whatever awful thing came to mind with either those who were wounded or those who were captured. That was the cultural standard. The Meccans may have... Done this if they had won. It probably depended on the person, but you probably would have seen some of it. It was just expected. There was no higher moral aspiration. Now, remember that in Mecca, the gods were basically servants of the people, not the other way around. Now, they probably didn't see it that way exactly, but in reality, that is what they were seeking. You worshiped an idol so that it would help you. It had nothing to do with obedience to a higher being or a higher principle. But then we have this new religion. Islam was the opposite of that. You served God. And that was it. So, God can take his vengeance. But you cannot. Or probably should not. It would be made a bit clearer later on. Of course, everyone in the Muslim army, they were Muslims now, but they grew up in the pagan world. They grew up with the old norms. So, according to at least some stories, many of them started doing the customary Arab thing after the battle. And eventually, Muhammad had to put a stop to it. Because not everyone would have absorbed the messages of, mercy and forgiveness and the new idea that Muslims would and actually should act different than those around them. How many of these people actually got that, you know, without being told, without Muhammad come having to come down and say, wait, no, let me clarify something for you here. And particularly in a group of young men who were still high on adrenaline, you know, that some atrocities would take place is not terribly surprising. And some confusion, even among the wiser, the, the more pious, the more understanding, I, I, I get why that would happen. If there were any who knew the Old Testament and who had been hearing the Jewish stories in Medina, there, there were times when the Israelites were in trouble for being merciful. Now, of course, that was because God was saying, hey, don't be merciful, and they were merciful. You know, the opposite would be just as true. If God told you to be merciful and you were ruthless, then you'd be in just as much trouble. But if God tells you, hey, finish these people off, you finish them off. For example... When God told Saul to completely obliterate the Amalekites, he actually messed up by showing some mercy. Now, did Muhammad know this story? Did his men know the story? Maybe a few. I don't know, but it's possible. But you can understand that there might be some moral confusion in this moment, particularly because they didn't actually have any instructions from God. But that changed, and eventually God made his opinion known. Now, the Muslims had never been in this situation, but now they had this direction, from the Quran, Surah 47, verse 5. So when you meet the disbelievers in battle, strike their necks until you have thoroughly subdued them. Then bind them firmly. Later, free them, either as an act of grace or by ransom until the war comes to an end. So will it be. Had Allah willed, he himself could have inflicted punishment on them. But he does this only to test some of you by means of others. And those who are martyred in the cause of Allah, he will never render their deeds void. In other words, what God is saying here is, when the battle is over, the killing is over. If God had wanted these people dead, they would be dead, and it's not for you to decide. So, prisoners of war are prisoners until a ransom is paid, or an exchange is made, or you just hold on to them until the war ends. much of that actually wouldn't be terribly out of place in a modern context, uh, like modern treaties, like the Geneva Convention. And in that way, it was pretty far ahead of its time. But as in wars between countries, theoretically bound by the Geneva Convention show, exceptions are always made, regardless of what the rules actually are, right? Particularly in the heat of battle. For example, in more modern times, World War II was the first test of these new rules. And it was somewhat a success, but the results varied. The uh, The Japanese, for example, they pretty much ignored it entirely. And the Nazis were a bit selective in how they enforced it. You know, they they put on a good show on the Western Front but they weren't going to follow any of these rules for, say, Slavic people in the East, and certainly not Jews or any other people that they really, really didn't like. And the Allies weren't exactly perfect on this either. There were some incidents in the American-British forces, and of course then you have the Russians, who basically raped an entire generation of German women as they moved West. Now The point is, these kinds of things are, by nature, kind of malleable, and war makes previously hard rules, concepts, more negotiable, and sometimes
1: completely irrelevant.
0: So why am I telling you this? It's an example that's a little closer to our own time that we can compare the Muslim actions to. And by their own standards, the Muslims actually did quite well on this front at Badr. There is disagreement on whether they executed a few prisoners here and there. And that might have happened. And one of those people may have been Abu Jahl. The sources vary. You know, we, we, there's just no way to know for sure. And it is possible he was badly wounded and finished off and beheaded and that head was taken to Muhammad. There is that version. And there's also another version where he just dies in battle. And in defense of any of the Muslims who started finishing off the wounded right away, there's one thing to keep in mind. It was not crystal clear at any point when the battle was and was not over. We know it was over because we know the Meccans retreated. In real time, They didn't know that. So yes, the Quraysh had retreated. But in the moment, what if they come back? So despite all these casualties, the Quraysh, the Meccans, it's the same thing. They could have organized and regrouped and continued the fight. Now they didn't, but again, it's us in the future that know that not the soldiers on the battlefield who didn't want wounded men hacking at their ankles as they fought in a protracted battle. So,
1: there is some gray there.
0: And there were some who, in some versions, were actually executed after the battle. Now, these are in some histories and not in others. Uh, They tend to be in the most early histories, which gives you an idea that at least then the Muslims did not find any of this embarrassing or morally compromising or any of that. But perhaps later, say with more 21st century sensibilities, decided, you know what, I'm going to leave this out. So did it happen? I don't know. But for what it's worth, (laughs) we'll go over the stories regarding these men who were executed after the battle, according to certain histories. Now what's interesting about these characters is that the common thread among those who were executed after the battle of Badr was they all committed some kind of offense related to poetry. Yes, poetry. (laughs) They were either poets, who wrote poems against the Quran or poetry critics who criticized Muhammad, <laughs> Muhammad's verses. And this just seems insane from a 21st century perspective. But I do think it's a great example of what kind of time this was and what they saw as important. And you just cannot overemphasize the importance of poetry in this culture. And that's something to just remember whenever you're thinking about the Quran or about history or any of this. It was that important. Those criticizing Muhammad, they were okay. They left him alone. But those who insulted his poetry, yeah, that's a capital offense. Now, I've been thinking of a modern equivalent of this for a while, but I'll just be straight up honest with you. I've got nothing. It's important. You know, we'll just have to work with that. It's important. I really can't think of anything in the modern world to compare it to. So poetry was very, very important to these people. And it seemed it was important to this community to send a message to those who might question Muhammad's poetry. Or, I should say, it's not even from their perspective, it wasn't Muhammad's poetry. It was God's poetry. And that, that's even
1: bigger. All
0: right. So what about those prisoners who were not literary critics? Well, for almost all of them, the deal was this, be ransomed for money, or if you were literate, your ransom would be to teach 10 Muslims to read. And that last one is actually pretty brilliant for a somewhat illiterate society. And this would have provided so much more value than just money, at least in the long term it would. Not just the literacy, but The fact that Muhammad could now count on hundreds more people to help him. In a much larger way. You know, those who he knew were loyal because of Badr. Loyal people he could trust completely. You know, and in the future he could surround himself with these people. And they would be infinitely more valuable to him if they were literate. Particularly as the empire, so to speak expanded, but they were not there yet, of course. So, Badr is over, and we see a few signals being sent to the rest of Arabia. Number one, the Muslims were now an important force to be reckoned with. And two, these people, they're different. And they fight differently. And they win differently too. These people were willing to forego their revenge, so to speak. And even wilder than that, this was actually a directive from their God. A direct order in words. And more than that, you have this different God. A A God who views mercy as a virtue. And there just weren't too many of those roaming around Arabia at the time. Now, did these two things help the Muslims or hurt them in the wilder sort of political situation and uh, power struggle on the Arabian Peninsula? Well, I would say yes and no. Because kindness can be a strength, and it can be a weakness, when it comes to warfare and alliance building, and even straight-up warfare. So the question for the next couple of years for Arabian tribes would be this. Are the Muslims weak fools because they are merciful? Or are they attractive because they are merciful? Different people, different tribes, they would have different answers. And historically, if we're being honest, it really does go both ways. We wish it didn't, but it does, especially from a military perspective. Being merciful and at least somewhat morally centered, that can attract allies. Uh, Just look at the United States, for example. No one has a larger, more powerful set of friends. And it's mostly because of shared values. There's a reason NATO has more than 30 countries, and China's only real ally is the giant open-air prison known as North Korea. So that's the good. But also, for those who have few moral restraints, there are some counteracting advantages. Take Russia, for example. Yes, their current alliance, it's a bit pathetic, but it was, at one time, much, much larger. And it wasn't because anyone outside Russia liked the Soviet Union. And even now, there's a reason the Russians won the Chechnya War. It's a battle Americans never could have won. America, at least in its current form, simply does not have the stomach for that kind of thing to do the things that need to be done if you want that result. So in that instance, ruthlessness was a benefit to the conqueror. But that reputation, it's two-sided. It isn't always helpful. Just look at the attitude of the people of Ukraine. Because if people hate you, they fight harder. But then again, if they fear you enough, you can have massive powerful blocks like the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact back in the day, so it can work. But, clearly, Muhammad was going in a more Western European or American direction here, for now. There would be some reliance on fear, of course, and some would need to be coerced, but there would be an underlying force of attraction. And that's Not exactly unprecedented, it's actually pretty smart. In our time, uh, for NATO, it's things like democracy and a certain version of human rights that are the force of attraction. And like it or hate it, that's the main uniting force. However, let's be honest here, there's also the willingness to use that big stick against people that you consider to be your moral inferiors. Muhammad would be creating something similar, only with Islam as the uniting set of values, but also backed with military might and the willingness to use that big stick against people you consider to be your moral inferiors. And by this point, the Muslims were wielding an increasingly large stick, a a larger power. This battle was so decisive, so one-sided, or the minor skirmish, if you want to call it that. But there was a belief that God really was fighting with them. We're talking walls of Jericho-type power. The Quran would later say this in Surah 3, verses 123 to 125. Indeed, Allah made you victorious at Badr when you were vastly outnumbered. So be mindful of Allah. Perhaps you will be grateful. Remember, O Prophet, when you said to the believers, Is it not enough that your Lord will send down a reinforcement of 3,000 angels for your aid? Most certainly, if you believers are firm and mindful of Allah, and the enemy launches a sudden attack on you, Allah will reinforce you with 5000 angels
1: designated for battle.
0: So the angels fight with them. And if they could get people who were not currently Muslims to actually believe that well the sky was the limit at least on the Arabian peninsula and as history would say would see later you know way beyond that. Because nothing recruits like success. They had stuck Mecca in the eye and lived to tell about it. And boy, did they stick Mecca in the eye. The Muslims were rather kind to the living, for the most part. You know, some exceptions. But to the dead? The Meccan dead, they were all thrown into one of the wells. Or maybe more than one. Now. I'll admit, I don't know for sure if this was an insult. I think it was, but it, it just seems like it. They didn't bother burying them for sure, but at the same time, they didn't leave them for the vultures. I've never really seen this addressed. You know, was it convenience, insult, mercy? I don't know. But I'm just going to kind of assume for now it's an insult based on what Muhammad is
1: saying later. And what
0: does Muhammad say? Well, in pretty much every history I have ever seen, again, at least the older ones, the the new ones tend to skip this. For I'm not sure why exactly, but they do. But in the original stories, Muhammad, the night after the battle, he is seen taunting the dead bodies in the well and saying things like, You fought your own kin. What did it get you? call me a liar, will you? Well, who was right? Do you think it's all true now?
1: And let's be honest,
0: if it were any one of us in that situation, you would probably do the same thing. So, you know, I don't really have a problem with that. I don't think anybody really did. But the problem (laughs) was that he wasn't alone when he did this. So it was a slight problem. He just had to clarify, hey, uh, those of you who heard me saying those things, don't start thinking that I'm talking to the dead. I cannot converse with the dead,
1: just to clarify.
0: So at this point, the next day comes and the battlefield is cleaned up, so to speak. So it was time to pack. Everything and head back to Medina, head back home. And funny enough, they would be leaving with far more than they had brought in both people and materials because the prisoners actually outnumbered the Muslim dead. I mean, by a lot, but they were able to handle the extra load. And this included the spoils of war, which was anything of value that could be taken off of the dead or had been left behind. And this spoils system, so to speak, this had started as a free-for-all. Again, remember, this is their first major battle. There's really no regulations about what you're supposed to do yet. However, later on, a Quranic revelation told the Muslims that, hey, any spoils of battle, they are for God and the Prophet." So, God and Muhammad are in charge. Now, what did that mean, at least in practice? Well, basically, everything would be pulled together and then divided evenly among those who participated in the battle. And that included the captives. So, I think they were divided according to their projected ransoms. And this took place long before they reached Medina. So, I think that meant that whatever was given to you, the victorious soldier, it was your responsibility to schlep it on back to Medina. You know, people and materials. So they head back to Medina, which was certainly becoming more Medina than Yathrib. You know, Yathrib's in the mirror. It is now the city of the prophet. And now, that prophet would be marching into the city in triumph and sharing the good news and assuring the loved ones of the very few dead that, hey, it's all right. Those guys
1: are now in paradise.
0: So there was great joy in Medina, but pretty much only among the Muslims, just to foreshadow some problems that would come up here. If you were what the histories would later call a Jew or a hypocrite, your joy was most definitely not full or even existent, you know, not even close. After all, from your perspective, Muhammad had just started a war with some very, very powerful people. And the Muslim army hadn't really killed that many of them. So if you're not caught up in the religious aspect of it, This wasn't exactly good news.
1: Just imagine that you
0: live in a village in a somewhat unstable part of the world. And you hear that some group from the city had won a skirmish against a major force in the region. Are you happy? Or, on the other hand, are you thinking, "Uh uh-oh, my place in this world just got much Much more precarious. We were at peace and now we're at war. And for what? What exactly do I have against these people? They didn't do anything to me. And indeed, the Jews and hypocrites, as they came to be known, they had no quarrel with the Quraysh. Really, this was a Muslim victory, not a city victory. The Muslims had poked the bear. But when the bear inevitably comes charging at the city, it's now the whole city that would need to defend it.
1: So Mecca,
0: Mecca was humiliated, but they were hardly crippled. The Muslims hadn't really won a war, particularly from a non-Muslim perspective. They had done the opposite of that. They had started a war and everyone knew that the empire was going to strike back. They had literally decapitated most of its high leadership. Yes, that was one positive aspect from their perspective. But the Meccans still had leaders, and money, and allies, and the Holy City, and the Kaaba. The Muslims had won a great victory, but had also, basically, kicked a hornet's nest, and dared the swarm to come at them. It was now Mecca versus Medina. It was the fight Muhammad wanted, and the fight the city's non-Muslims had always feared. But it was here. There's no denying that. Nothing you can do about it. And everyone, from Mecca, to the Muslims, to the non-Muslims of Medina, they were now all bound... By that reality. Thank you, and I'll
1: talk to you next time. Inshallah.